This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Renee Dudley, reporter of ProPublica, an independent nonprofit newsroom known for their commitment to investigative journalism. Renee, thanks for chatting with me today. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me. Pleasure is ours as well. Thank you. So before we get started, Renee, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you ended up where you're at now? Yeah. So I'm a tech reporter at ProPublica, where I've been since 2018. And I'm also co-author of the book, The Ransomware Hunting Team, which tells the story of the rise and evolution of ransomware as well as the personal stories of the people who fight it. And it's been an interesting road to get to where I am. You know, by way of background, before joining ProPublica in 2018, I was a corporate investigations reporter at Reuters. And there, I heard from CISOs and top IT people at Fortune 500 companies, household name type companies, And they would tell me their frustrations. They were so frustrated because they knew that they had to invest in cybersecurity, but they could not get their boards of directors to take them seriously. So what would happen is I'd hear from people who'd say, you know, we asked our board for 10 million or 20 million or $40 million to invest in cybersecurity for a year. And the boards would come back to us and say, are you nuts? You want us to give you $40 million for something that at the end of the year, we're not going to have anything to show for it. We're not going to have a press release to put out. We won't have a new product to launch. We're not going to have anything to show for it. And of course, yeah, as your audience will know, that's the point. You don't want anything to show for a $40 million investment in cybersecurity. You want nothing to happen. And that was something that was just difficult for the boards to get their heads around for some of these folks at that time. And one of the things that kept cropping up, and this is mid-2018, is the threat of ransomware. These CISOs were concerned about this threat, which at the time, if you'll recall, it was some of the first six-figure ransoms and the first what's known now as big game hunting, where hackers would come in, lock up systems of big corporations, you know, this big city government demand a ransom to get those files back. And as your as your audience, I'm sure knows, you know, usually paid in Bitcoin. And they were concerned about this threat. So when I jumped over to ProPublica, you know, I have to say, I don't have a big technical background. Like I said, my background is, is in investigative reporting. And I was on, you know, sort of covering companies at that time. And I got together with my then editor, who ultimately became my co-author on the ransomware hunting team. And we got together to talk about story ideas. And I mentioned this, you know, sort of corporate landscape of failing to invest adequately in cybersecurity. And I mentioned ransomware. And my editor was really taken with just the ransomware part of it. You know, he was almost in disbelief that files could be held for ransom in the same way that people could and kidnap for ransom. And we decided together that I should just go all in on ransomware. And he was convinced that we'd find some U.S. angles beyond the fact that so many victims were based in the U.S. And so I started reporting and 
when I was reaching out to people who I thought might know about ransomware, nearly everybody I talked to said, I must speak with this man that they knew only as Demon Slay 335. And I said, sure, you know, let me go find him. And I, I tracked him down to Twitter where he had thousands and thousands of followers um, and was clearly a big presence. And, you know, I thought it was entertaining. His Twitter bio said he loved cats, dogs and bunnies and coding. And I was like, well, this is an interesting fellow. So I tracked him down to his workplace, which was, it was a nerds on call IT repair shop in the town of Normal, Illinois. And I called him there and he seemed quite taken aback to be hearing from, you know, a national news reporter. You know, it was clear he, you know, he'd never sort of dealt with the press like that. And I told him that surprised me because everybody that I, talked to so far had just said that he's just the greatest at ransomware. So we got talking and he ended up being incredibly helpful on a series that ultimately published in 2019 at at ProPublica called The Extortion Economy, which was all about the economy of ransomware, both on the hacker side and on the US side of it. And he was really helpful, just a a great guy who helped, you know, somebody non-technical like myself understand really complex topics. And at a certain point, I decided it would be worth going to visit Michael in Illinois. You know, it's, it's, it's nice to meet sources in person and get to know them better and see what they're like. And so I flew from where I'm based in Boston to the Bloomington Normal Regional Airport to meet him. And... You know, by the time that I got there, you know, I'd known Michael for months, you know, but over the phone. And by this point, I knew that Michael was a part of this global team called the Ransomware Hunting Team. And it was a group of about a dozen private researchers who work for free and in their spare time to develop free tools that victims of ransomware can use to unlock their files without having to pay hackers. And You know, I thought that the notion of this team was really interesting, but I also knew that Michael was its foremost member. He cracked more ransomware than anyone else. You know, I'm sure as your listeners know, there's hundreds and hundreds of strains of ransomware. Some can be cracked by members of the hunting team and others, and some cannot. And Michael had cracked more than 100 strains. And I knew that this team had saved millions of victims from paying billions of dollars to hackers. So, you know, knowing that Michael is the world's greatest ransomware hunter, you know, I expected to see the trappings of somebody who's the world's greatest. You know, usually when somebody is the world's greatest, they've got an entourage, they've got handlers and public relations people and schedulers, you know, your people talk to my people kind of thing. But not Michael. I drove up to his house. He lives in, you know, a rundown bungalow, needs repairs in this working class neighborhood. And, you know, he greets me from his front porch swing. He's got his literally eight cats, you know, milling about. And, you know, he's just this unassuming guy. And we start talking and he'd open his phone. And every time he opened his phone, he'd have something like 40 new direct messages from people just desperate for his help, desperate to recover their university thesis or their law firm's um, client files that had been locked by hackers or their personal photos or anything that you can imagine. 
So he would open his direct messages on Twitter or IT help sites, and then he'd go back to talking to me. And then he'd open and respond to more messages and then chat with me some more. And as the day wore on, he got more comfortable and we started talking about, you know, his personal life and how he and his wife were struggling financially. You know, they'd fallen behind on their bills. They had to um, surrender their car to the bank. They almost lost their house because they fell behind on mortgage payments. And he's going through all these financial hardships, even as he's helping literally millions of people for free who will never even know his real name and who often are, you know, thankless. He told me how he, you know, at 28 years old, had just overcome cancer. And I was so taken by his personal situation and his ability to just keep going and keep hunting ransomware and keep helping victims despite these very challenging personal circumstances that I immediately knew that he would have a great story to tell for a profile. And so it was. When I left Michael, I went back to the airport after two days with them. And I called my editor from the airport and I said, we've got an unbelievable profile here. And so it became a profile and attracted quite a bit of attention from literary agents who were you know, just as taken with his story as I was. And ultimately became the book, The Ransomware Hunting Team, which is about Michael and his band of um, misfit private researchers, the heroes that we didn't realize we needed, who are, are working to save the world from the threat of ransomware. Yeah. Wow. So there's been a number of these kind of like community efforts, right, of organizations made of volunteers that come together to, you know, stop various things. There's people who try to stop DDoS. There's people who, you know, try to understand botnets. There's all of these efforts. Our own team at Kincomery, we kind of started in a, in, in a not too dissimilar uh, fashion. But I think for a ransomware, you know, if you think of the financial savings, like, I mean, DDoS is expensive to a target. Don't get me wrong. But in the case where all of their data is taken, it's a shame that they were having such a hard time because he was probably responsible for recovering, you know, I mean, who knows, millions, if not billions of dollars, because I'm, I'm familiar with their work. It's a shame that to be in such a tough spot while out, you know, saving the world, that's a shame. I'm, it's good that, well, hopefully, you know, their situation changed as a result of your work, if nothing else. Yeah, a few things on that. One of the things that really struck me about Michael, and the same can be said of many of the other members of this, you know, dozen member team, they don't seem to be motivated. And they they come out and say this. They're not motivated by the same things that motivate most people, fame, money, success, power. You know, a number of them, Michael included, came from backgrounds of poverty or bullying. Some of them, you know, came from situations of childhood abuse, but most of them were bullied in their youth when they were in, in their school days. And they say that they see fighting ransomware as a way to get back at the bullies of their youth. The team members, many of them have never met in person, and most of them have never met in person. And they're not necessarily comfortable in real life situations. They're much more comfortable living in the online virtual world. And as such, you know, that's their home. That's their intellectual home. That's their home in, you know, a very real sense. And they don't like bad guys there. And, you know, they see ransomware as these are bad guys on our turf. We don't want them here. And they know that they're uniquely suited to fight back and to help victims. 
And so that's their primary motivation. And a number of times the question of accepting payment from victims for their services has come up. And each time that they rebuffed that. And so they're just sort of uniquely wired. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that a number of the team members are neurodiverse. At least one or two are on the autism spectrum. A few of them including Michael and his, you know, the number two code breaker on the team, a German named Fabian Wostar, have ADHD, which is usually associated with inability to focus, but in some people manifests as extreme hyper-focus. So they focus on ransomware for days on end. They just can't let it go. It's just this intellectual challenge for them, and they have to solve it, and they won't let it go until they do, or at least until they know that it can't be cracked. And So they're unique in that way. And I will say that after the profile ran, um, Michael did get a better paying job and he's on much sure financial footing now. But, you know, that was years in the making. And a number of the members of the team have been in similar circumstances. They've faced all kinds of hardship as they've been doing this work. One of the members, a reclusive Hungarian known as Malware Hunter team, The other members of the team started a GoFundMe account because he was having trouble making ends meet. And there's another member named Daniel Gallagher of North Carolina. The stress of hunting ransomware manifested in his life in a different way, which is, you know, he suffered from a mental health breakdown of sorts and he was losing weight. And the stress of it all was, you know, taking a toll on his marriage And it's another similarity among the members of the team. It's just the extreme toll that all of this has had on their lives and yet their unwillingness to stop fighting it. Wow. Yeah, that's a remarkable story. So you had said that you don't have, you know, a strong technical background. So I think our listeners would be very interested to hear kind of what does that process look like as a cybersecurity focused reporter in this way? Like, how do you approach doing this research and what's the most exciting, you know, part of that process? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I don't need to know how to write code to do my job. You know, I don't have to do the work that the team does, but I have to know, I have to understand it enough to write about it. And that's where sources like Michael and Fabian Wosar really are absolutely crucial. You know, before they were the subjects of a book about their team, they were my technical experts. And I'll give an example from that 2019 extortion economy series to show you what I mean. So I had, you know, one of the things that I was interested in as I was starting the ransomware series is I had become aware, and now it's sort of common knowledge, but it wasn't at the time. I'd become aware of these firms that had cropped up in the U.S. that were known as ransomware data recovery firms. And, you know, coming into the topic a little naive, I was surprised that firms in America existed to assist with ransomware transaction, because it just seemed to me that it was sort of aiding the um, payment of a crime, you know, but it's not illegal to pay a ransom, you know, it's not. And I I learned that quickly. But what I learned very quickly then was that there were some of these firms that were doing things above board, you know, in a very transparent way. And the one that I had gotten to know first was Coveware based in Connecticut. 
And then I learned that there were some of these firms that were not transparent. So Coveware, you know, on one hand, yeah, there's people who are hit by ransomware and would like to pay the ransom. You know, they, they may be unaware that the hunting team could help them recover for free or they might not have backups or, you know, maybe it's one that, that the hunting team hasn't cracked and they don't know how to transact the payment. They want to pay, but they they don't know how to transact, obtain the Bitcoin or negotiate with the hackers. So they hire a firm like Coveware to do that. And Coveware, you know, on the one hand, it explains every step of the process to the client, the client slash victim, you know, who needs to pay the ransom. And Cover handles the negotiation. They settle on the, you know, a, a demand that the, you know, after negotiating with the hacker, they settle on a demand that the victim is willing to pay. They transact the payment. They get a fee for their service. You know, everybody moves on. But on the other hand, I learned of these firms that, say that they're able to recover your files without having to pay hackers, when in reality, they're just paying the hackers without telling the victim and charging a hefty fee on top. And that was very interesting to me because in effect, these firms were scamming the victims twice. You know, the victims would be victimized twice. They're being victimized by the hackers who locked up their files for a ransom, and then they're being victimized by the company that they hired to help them, which is actually misleading them about their practices. And, you know, this came up a lot. There were two companies in particular that I wrote about in 2019. One is based in Florida and is called Monster Cloud, and the other is based in New York, was based in New York and called Proven Data Recovery. And so I wanted to dig in on those two firms that I'd heard about that were doing this, you know, sort of misleading of clients. And how did I do that? Well, they had been, you know, especially Monster, both of them, but especially Monster Cloud had been appealing to public entities like law enforcement agencies or cities, because those are places that are very reluctant to pay ransoms because taxpayer dollars are at stake and nobody, you know, especially if you're law enforcement, it's like no county sheriff wants to negotiate with criminals, as they say. So, you know, hiring a company like Monster Cloud that said that they had this <laughs> trade secret, they had this corporate trade secret that allowed them to have the solution without having to pay the hackers, that was very appealing for some of these especially local law enforcement agencies who are, as I'm sure you know, a frequent target of ransomware. And so what I did was I learned of who some of the clients were by just on the company MonsterCloud's website because they had all these testimonials from satisfied customers. And so I knew who they were. And what I did was, you know, any member of the public is entitled to file a public records request of public agencies for documents. And that's what I did. So I would go to you know the county offices where some of these clients were located and I filed requests for contracts or email correspondence between Monster Cloud and the agency things like that and that gave me a window into how they were operating and to prove that they were doing what I had heard they were doing that they were misleading clients the way that I did that was through these contracts and through these emails and other correspondence that I got through these public records requests, I would be able to find out what strain of ransomware had hit the organization. And then Michael or Fabian would be able to tell me that's a strain 
that is not decryptable or that is a strain that is decryptable. And of course, if it's a strain that is not decryptable, you know, in other words, if it's a strain that the hunting team or other researchers or antivirus companies have not cracked, that means that the only recourse would be to pay the ransom to get the files back. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a number of circumstances that I documented in the story that ultimately ran, I was able to prove through Michael and Fabian and others' technical expertise that the strains that they said that they had solved, they hadn't actually solved. They really paid the ransom and just didn't tell the clients about it and charged them huge fees for this service. And I was able to nail it down that way. And Monster Club in particular was very brazen about this. And they, in their contract with the various parties, they called all of this their trade secret. Their trade secret was something that they would never be able to tell even their paying clients about. It was just how they did their business. And through my reporting, I was able to show that that trade secret was not a solution like the kind that the hunting team creates, but it was actually paying the hackers. Wow. So I could see, especially like a small municipality, I could see them needing help to do the Bitcoin part, right? Because if you're not following the cryptocurrency thing, I could see that, but the rest of that is outrageous. I understand everybody needs money, you know, and taking advantage of a situation with a solution, uh, that is business, right? You know, you're providing something that somebody needs, but to exploit people when they're in their most desperate state, to exploit them in that way, that's unbelievable. Sadly, I have to say, though, I'm not surprised. There's always people out there uh, who do that. So you got out, you have met with, you know, these people, uh, the customers of these folks, right? I assume they were in various industries, you know, some government, things like that. Did you notice any kind of like patterns amongst those targeted folks? And what ways would you say if you did see, you know, uh, patterns there, like what could people do to help defend themselves or to prepare for a potential ransomware attack? Well, a few things on that. I'll start with the second part first. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. The hunting team, they're the first ones to say, we don't want people to need us, right? They, right. They, prevention is the best course in all of this. And what does prevention look like? Well, you know, number one, good backups, backups that are adequately protected and offline, both online and offline. You know, for home users, you know, like myself, I've become a lot more vigilant about this kind of thing. The hunting team would say, you want a backup of your, of your files on something like an external hard drive that's not connected to the internet that you unplug and keep in a safe and that you keep it regularly updated. And of course for, you know, it, it's a lot more complex if you're a, you know, a business, you know, a small medium business or a huge organization. And in those cases, there's common pitfalls that you see hackers exploit time and again. Unpatched software is one. I mean, that's, you know, everybody wants to delay, you know, having to shut their computer down and patch software, but, you know, hackers are exploiting it. And then, you know, not having two-factor authentication on, you know, it's sadly not surprising to see that that is, you know, remains one of the ways that hackers are, you know, able to infiltrate big networks, you know, open RDP portals, and then of course, phishing emails. And Sadly, those are just becoming more and more and more sophisticated. And, you know, users have to be extremely vigilant 
about looking at that, you know, where emails are coming from and making sure that it's truly who you think it's coming from and, you know, that it's spelled correctly and everything like that. Then to the other part of your question about, you know, common targets, you know, I think it's helpful to look back over, you know, the past decade of ransomware. Early on, targets were mostly home users. And it was what in the biz is called spray and pray, the spray and pray approach. Hackers would just cast a wide net, get as many home users to click on bad links as possible, realizing that, you know, they weren't going to have a heavy conversion rate and, you know, to use some business terms and, um, and they'd hit them for, you know, a couple hundred dollars a piece. And, you know, as time wore on and hackers became more organized and sophisticated, the victims became more targeted. They're, you know, hackers specialized. So, you know, there's somebody, instead of a one-stop shop, now there's somebody writing the code, there's somebody finding the vulnerabilities, there's somebody executing the ransomware, there's, you know, somebody laundering the money, and all of the specialization has allowed the hackers to become a lot more, you know, they, they've grown more sophisticated and the ransomware has become better. And, you know, now, you know, targets, and there, there's really, there's some industries that seem to be heavily targeted, but it's true to say that nobody is immune. I mean, my own publisher, I'm not sure if this is a coincidence or not, but my own publisher, Macmillan, was hit with ransomware a few weeks before the book came out. Um, that was the closest encounter ever with ransomware. But healthcare is routinely targeted. Education is routinely targeted. Public entities are, municipalities and governments are targeted. You know, those are targeted in healthcare because many of them don't necessarily have the funds to invest in cybersecurity. They may be using legacy systems and they're easy to exploit. And hackers know that they're both vulnerable to the attack, but also need to, you know, cannot be down for long. I mean, you know, if you take the, you know, a look at the healthcare sector, in the book, we describe the first death attributed to ransomware, a baby died in Alabama at a hospital that had been hit by um, what's believed to have been Ryuk ransomware. And the fetal monitors in the labor and delivery ward went down. And the nurses were unable to see at the nurse's station that the fetus was in distress, that should have been born by um, C-section, according to the family's lawsuit, and was not. And it was born severely brain damaged and died shortly later. These are the kinds of life and death situations that are coming up because of ransomware. And the hackers know that. Yeah, wow. So did you do any research into the adversarial groups? Like, you know, there's a lot of people who think of it as, you know, just people in their basement doing bad stuff. But as of more recently, people are talking about nation state involvement, heavily sanctioned countries that are also taking advantage of this to have an income. Did you do any research into the folks behind ransomware? Oh, yes, um, extensively. I and mean, this was a big part of the book. So that was one of the main things that my co-author and I wanted to tackle, which is who is on the other side of this? And some things surprised me and some things didn't. One thing that surprised me that maybe shouldn't have is that there are remarkable similarities between the hackers and the hunters. You know, from the evidence that we found, the hackers, like the hunters, are mostly young men. 
they're mostly self-taught. You know, the hackers and the hunters, from what we can tell, they are learning their craft. They're obsessed with cryptography and learns their craft by YouTube tutorials and by checking books out of the library. They don't have those big formal educations. They're gamers. And they even have some of the same interests in movies. A number of members of the ransomware hunting team are obsessed with Disney. You know, there's a ransomware strain called the Kuna Matata. <laughs> um, and they respect each other. And the hackers respect the hunters, and you know, of course. But there's this acknowledgement that to do this, you have to have some skills. You know, the hunters don't respect what they're doing, but there is some kind of sense of you've got these amazing skills, <laughs> you know, why are you using them for that? Why aren't you using them for what we're doing instead? That's that's what I'll start off with. But, you know, interestingly, there's been this banter between the hackers and the hunters as well, because the hackers know that the hunters are taking apart their code. And there's been attempts in, in you know, they'll drop attempts just written in the code to try to recruit members of the hunting team to their side. Um, wow. Saying your skills are so great, you know, come to our side, you can make a lot more money. And of course, the members of the hunting team would never consider this. But in darker moments, you know, especially, you know, given what I described of their, some of them facing extreme poverty, they've joked about, you know, if we just ran one campaign for a weekend, we can clear a couple hundred thousand dollars, our problems would go away. But of course, they would never do this. And the recruiting has gone both ways too. Daniel Gallagher, the North Carolina member, he successfully recruited a ransomware hacker to the good side. And uh, it's somebody that they know for a fact has, you know, changed their hat color from black to white and is now um, actually helping victims. But the question of who the hackers really are. I have two examples that highlight the changing nature of ransomware. So the first I'll mention is I got to know a hacker called Adrian who ran a ransomware called Ziggy in early 2021. And Ziggy ransomware, you know, for that time, it was sort of quaint, you know, it was kind of represents the old model of ransomware, which is hit users for a couple hundred bots. And Adrian said he was young. He had finished the equivalent of high school. And he was had been interested in computers his whole life. He was a gamer. And he wanted to work in IT. But where he lived in the Middle East, he didn't, there were no prospects for him. And he had no way to pay for his cost of living. And so he turned to ransomware. And he said he was also politically motivated. He was hitting victims in the US and Israel again, for a couple hundred dollars a piece to recover their files. And eventually, Adrian said he started to feel guilty about what he was doing. And it, it may be coincidence or not that that guilt came against the backdrop of um, a global law enforcement crackdown on botnets, um, ransomware supporting botnets. So he may have been feeling the heat of law enforcement as well. But in any case, Adrian decides, I want to get out. He goes, like everybody does, to Demon Slate 335, Michael Gillespie, the star of our book, and says, you know, I want to unload these keys. Can you take these keys and create a decryptor so that victims who haven't yet paid can recover their files for free? And of course, Michael obliges. And Adrian took the unusual step of actually giving refunds to people who had already paid. So he really represents the kind of quainter days of ransomware. On the other hand, 
you know, somebody who represents what ransomware has evolved into is a hacker named Maxime Yakubins, who ran the appropriately named Evil Corp Malware Empire. And Yakubins represents what you had alluded to earlier, which is this evolution into possibly nation state ransomware. Yakubits is under indictment by the U.S. Justice Department, but he is based in Russia. And so Russia has no extradition treaty with the U.S. Obviously, relations are very tense and icy, and they're not going to extradite him. You know, his only chances of being captured are his, you know, RFP visits you know, the wrong country on vacation or something like that. But he's so confident in his freedom that he actually drives around Moscow in a Lamborghini with a license plate that translates to thief. Um, you know, this is somebody who knows he's not going to face time in a U.S. prison unless, like I said, he travels to the wrong place. At the time of his indictment, he was working on behalf of the FSB, which is one of the Russian intelligence agencies, the successor one of the successors to the KGB. And oh, and his uh, father-in-law is a known friend of Putin. <laughs> um, so this is a guy who feels extremely secure in his freedom. And, you know, Evil Corp ran a variety of well-known ransomware strains that have attacked household name U.S. victims for millions and millions and millions of dollars. And you know, it's his close alignment with the FSB shows that, you know, ransomware, if not being done at the behest of enemies of the U.S., is at least being done under the protection of those enemies. And ransomware, from the evidence that I've seen, is increasingly being used as a cover for intelligence gathering operations. Because as you probably know, hackers are no longer just locking up your files. They're actually stealing them before they lock them. And when you think about it in that light, you know, you can think about who the victims are and what <laughs> places like, you know, Russia may have in their possession. Anything from health records to corporate trade secrets to state secrets. Wow. Yeah. So as things have changed, right, with that process, I would assume then not just the intelligence gathering, but there's probably all kinds of, you know, other trade secrets and whatnot that you could hold independently hostage, like not just encrypted, but say, if you don't pay us, we're going to, you know, tell Coca-Cola the ingredients to Pepsi or, you know, the, you know, these yeah. types of scenarios. Oh, yeah. yeah. This happens. This happens day in and day out. The hackers actually have what are called leak sites. And so this is another tool in their arsenal as people are getting, and this has been happening over the past few years, but as organizations are getting savvier about the need for backups and robust and well-protected backups, the hackers need another tool to as leverage. And so they're using these stolen files as leverage in negotiations. If you don't pay us, you know, so the victims may not need to pay anymore because they've got great backups, right? But they may feel pressured to pay because the hackers are threatening the public release of their most valuable secrets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. So one last question. So there's a lot of practitioners out there that are doing independent research, you know, for example, just like your hunt team. What advice do you have for those folks to help them get their work published more broadly, to get more exposure on their research and things like that? Do you have any advice for those types of folks? 
Well, I can tell you where the hunting team got its start. And that is a computer help site that your listeners are probably familiar with called Bleeping Computer, um, mm-hmm. which started out as a computer help site, but, you know, sort of evolved into, you know, mostly focusing on ransomware. And on it, you know, mostly as a result of the team's help. But back in 2015, even earlier, victims of ransomware and other types of malware were coming to this site and posting on forums just desperate for help. And that's when the team members started converging and just responding to people on these forums who were looking for help. And I'm certain that there are analogous forums dedicated to other types of computer problems and cybercrime. And the victims needed help and the members of the hunting team who you know, they weren't the hunting team yet, but they were this you know dedicated band of researchers who didn't know each other. The same people started responding with their solutions and their help. And it just evolved from there. And in 2016, that's when they came together over Slack and, you know, it kind of instituted themselves as a team, but it, it all came together very naturally. Okay. So just get out there and do it and uh, good things will come. What's that movie? Um, field of dreams. It's the uh, build it and they'll come. Yeah. So that's all the time that we have for today. Thanks so much for coming to chat with us. It's a very interesting story. You know, it's a shame that people take advantage of these circumstances coming and going, but that's uh, not something I would have expected. But um, like I said, unfortunately, I'm not surprised to hear that people were doing that type of stuff. If our listeners want to keep up with uh, your work and, you know, see what other research that you're doing, what's the best place for them to go? Well, certainly um, at ProPublico, where I uh, am a tech reporter. And if you're interested in the book, it's available on all the major online sellers like Amazon. And I also have a website where you can learn more about the book and how to buy it, which is renee.lee.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I hope you have a great day. And uh, we'll hopefully follow up uh, with more work that you do. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Renee. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.